It was St. Augustine who said that our hearts are restless until they rest in you. It was his prayer to God. The recognition that even way back in, what was he, the, the 5th century, I believe? Back in the 5th century, humanity was the same then as it is now, that we are a restless people. We're searching for some place to put our feet, some place to call our home. And as a result, we all launch on a journey. We're not all on the same road, but we're all on one of two different kinds of journeys. One road of these journeys is a pretty easy one because it doesn't really go anywhere other than where you are right now. Its cruise control and its decline is so slight that you can just coast. But as the Proverbs warn us, there's a, r- a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. But then there's the other road, the one that goes up toward Jerusalem, up toward Mount Zion. And it's difficult because, well, at first it's very steep and there are going, there's going to be aches and cramps in your legs and your lungs are going to be burning and your heart is going to be beating and sweat will be dripping into your eyes and you'll always be hungry and the people around you will always be complaining. But as you continue up the path, it gets easier as you go. This is the path, the ascension toward Jerusalem. And we are on our way to the new Jerusalem. Now, the Psalms, we often, I think, feel like are a random collection of a bunch of different poems and prayers. And it's true, there's a lot of different poems and prayers in here. However, they weren't just randomly gathered. There's 115 poems, let's stack them together. They were actually arranged and categorized. And one example of that is where we are now, that when they put the Psalms together, they, they put 15 of them specifically together to be called a song of ascent, as the title on each one will say in your Bible, or a pilgrim psalm. And the reason for 15 is twofold. First, there were 15 steps in Jerusalem that led up to the temple. 15 steps. Here are the pilgrims, the people on their journey, finding their rest in God in Jerusalem, making their 15 steps up. And some have even proposed that the priests would stand on each of the 15 stairs singing one of these psalms. The second reason is that, as you guys know very well, what's called the Aaronic Blessing in Numbers chapter 6 has 15 words in Hebrew. The Aaronic Blessing is this, the Lord bless you and keep you, the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you, The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. That blessing which we sing at the end of every service is 15 words long. And four of the six lines of this blessing repeat themselves throughout the majority of these 15 psalms, leading some people to suggest that there are 15 psalms of ascent because they mimic the 15 words of the blessing which they would hear upon their arrival in Jerusalem when the priest would say, the Lord bless you and keep you and cause his face to shine upon you and so forth as they arrive. We're so happy you're here. And so they are anticipating the blessing of being in the courts of God as they make their ascent. So that's the 15 psalms of ascent. 
And we are on step number two tonight, and it's called walk. Because step one last week was called God. The way you begin this journey is by saying yes to God and no to the world. Yes to God and no to the world. But here's what we realize on step two, is that when we say no to the world, we are not saying yes to a comfortable life. Some people believe that when you come to God and say yes to him, he's going to take care of all your problems. It's going to be easy sailing. You've got the product, the ultimate product, with its eternal satisfaction guaranteed. I'm good. Yes, you are good, but there's going to be some bumps and some challenges because as Jonathan Edwards had said, and we said last week, the beginning of the, the ascent is steepest at first. There are going to be some real foot throbs as you begin your journey. So step two is about the time you're going to say, ah, I don't want to keep going. And thus, we need to be told, this is precisely the time. You said yes to God and no to the world. This is precisely the time to choose to walk. So walk. That's what this psalm is going to encourage us to do. We need the encouragement because we are creatures of comfort. Because we want God to be someone we say yes to who will then pave the path with pure, smooth concrete. No potholes, no turns, no twists, no steep cliff edges, no narrows on the 189, rock falls, and who knows what else. That's what we want, but that's not reality. We're going up against the gravity of the world. So we need to be encouraged to walk because we're now on a path full of lions and tigers and bears. Oh my. Some of you are saying, oh my, for another reason. He really went there? <laughs> Obey. <laughs> so we want safety, we want ease, but we have a path of danger and challenge. So we need to be encouraged to walk. So let's look at the psalm. And I want you to remember the ironic blessing. What is it again? The Lord bless you and keep you. That is the theme of this psalm. Count how many times it comes up. Psalm 121, a song of ascents. I lift my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come? My help comes from Yahweh, who made heaven and earth. He will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. Yahweh is your keeper. Yahweh is your shade on your right hand. The sun shall not strike you by day, nor the moon by night. Yahweh will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. Yahweh will keep you're going out and you're coming in from this time forth and forevermore. What an amazing psalm. Right after we saw in Psalm 120 that the distress of living in the world and living in a people who are always lying to you, you're for peace, but they say we're for war, living in that place and where he says, woe to me that I sojourn in Meshach and Kedar, the places of the world, 
What a beautiful psalm that once you say yes to God, I'm, in, I'm done with this lying, distressing place, that then, and you step out and you see, oh my goodness, it looks steep. It looks challenging. Isn't it look so much easier to sit on my easy boy watching the latest edition of Democrats biting each other's heads off? Isn't it so much more cozy? But this psalm encourages you to walk. Because what it wants to say over and over is, but Yahweh keeps you. He's your shade. He doesn't sleep. He's supporting your foot. He's there the whole way. You can do this until you get the legs that are strong enough to keep going. He will hold you. How many times did you guys count keep? Katrina nailed it. Six. I highlighted every one to see it just in, in, in a... In a visual way, this psalm is loaded with the theme keep. It literally looks like every other line is colored green in my Bible. That's what this psalm's about. We can walk, regardless of the danger, regardless of the lions or the tigers or the bears or the robbers or the rocks or the potholes or the rock slides, we, or the fog, <laughs> or the coronavirus. We can keep going because God keeps us. A beautiful psalm for the second step of the ascension. Now, you can notice some of the things about his keeping us. Um, in verse 3 and 4, it goes out of its way to say in four different ways, or three different ways, that he won't sleep. He's keeping you and he's not going to sleep, right? Look how much it says this in verse 3. He will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. Now that's, that's classic Hebrew poetry. It's, the way we do poetry is we like to rhyme things. Roses are red, violets are blue, I have a head, and so do you. Not bad from the spot, I guess. Um, <laughs> that's how we do poetry, right? We rhyme, we have rhythm. The Jews would do poetry with concepts that so-called rhyme, like a rhyming concept. In other words, they would say a line and then they would parallel the line saying it slightly differently. So that's what the psalm's doing. Like, he's not going to slumber. He who keeps Israel will not slumber or sleep. Um, they like to say the same things over and over. That's how the poetry works. So we see in these ver first verses 3 and 4, it's very evident that this is not a God who sleeps. Because there are many gods who sleep. There are many gods that don't care about us, that don't watch over us, that don't keep us. In fact, they need, need to be kept. They need, need to be woken up. Do you remember when Elijah was battling the prophets of Baal in 1 Kings chapter 18? There was a contest because there's this god named Baal. He was like the god of gods to the people who lived where Israel moved in. He was the local deity. And everybody who was anybody loved Baal. In fact, the king himself married someone who considered herself the priestess of Baal and littered the land with temples devoted to Baal. This was the trending movement in Israel. 
but praise God for the prophets who always resisted trends and said, I'm going to stick true to whatever's true, regardless what people think. Elijah says, I'm for Yahweh, even if everybody's for Baal. And they're like, you're so lame, Elijah. Your God is so, he's so last millennium. Baal's the new thing. Everybody, get on board. Get modernized, Elijah. And Elijah's like, well, perhaps. I'll consider it if you can prove to me Baal's more powerful than Yahweh. Oh, you're on, everybody says. And the tweets start blasting, and the New York Times shows up on Mount Carmel to report the contest of the year. Elijah and Yahweh versus the many prophets of Baal. And so there, they both build altars. And the priests of Baal are given permission to go first. You can use all the tricks you want, Elijah says. I won't copy anything you do. Throw it all out there. You go first. And so they do. And they start dancing and throwing a party and shouting and hollering and making a parade, basically saying, Obey all! Pay attention to us! Come bring your fire! We need your fire. And what does Elijah say to this as the hours go on? <laughs> so in uh, 1 Kings 18, 26, it says, They took the bull that was given them, and they prepared it and called upon the name of Baal from morning until noon, saying, now, their voices are so hoarse by now, you can imagine. Oh, Baal, answer us! But there was no voice, and no one answered, and they limped around the altar that they had made. Limping, probably because they're gashing themselves. There's mutilation to get their God's attention. And at noon, Elijah mocked them, saying, now, I don't suggest you just go out and mock everybody you see that doesn't follow God. That's not a good starting point. Elijah has some credentials here. But he does mock them, and he says, Cry aloud, for he is a God. Either he is musing, or he is relieving himself. Someone said go to the, going to the bathroom. Or he is on a journey, or perhaps he is asleep and must be awakened. So they took his advice and cried out all the more and cut themselves with their swords until their blood gushed out upon them. Well, friends, that is what it's like to cry out to the gods that need us to keep them. They're not on duty until we call for them. And when we call for them, we must be more entertaining to them than whatever it is they are doing at the moment. You've, most of you have raised kids before. You remember what it's like when you're trying to have your moment, relieving yourself, and they're pounding on the door needing you. This is not the God. That's the image of Baal that Elijah was presenting. He's a little too busy for you right now. But this God, Yahweh, it says that he doesn't sleep or slumber. Imagine that. We don't have to put on a show that's more entertaining than whatever else he's into. Which, by the way, is a really interesting thought. How in the world is God at all interested in us? 
And how in the world are you ever, no, how in the universe are you ever going to get a deity's attention to say, yo, me, the speck of dust on this little planet in this vast universe needs you. And the God who's spinning galaxies and having fun playing cosmic bowling is like, oh, oh, I'm so glad you called on me because you look far more interesting than these things. In fact, Psalm 8 wrestles with this very concept. The psalmist in Psalm 8 looks at the stars and says, who is man that you'd be mindful of him? We don't have a God whom we have to entertain and wake up and keep interested. He keeps us. And that's the promise of this psalm, is that you don't go on this journey having to keep your gear, keep your act together, because on the journey, he keeps you. Some people worry about their salvation. They worry about their relationship with God. They worry about a lot. I would too if I'm the one who's trying to save my soul. But if God is my savior, then God is also my keeper. And I can entrust it to him. He's also our shade. In verse 5, we see Yahweh is your keeper. Yahweh is your shade on your right hand. Now the shade is 4 verse 6. The sun shall not strike you by day, nor the moon by night. And not to just overtax the theme, but seriously, if we were, if this was a psalm right now today, he might even say, nor the coronavirus when you go out. Because it's one of the things, right? He's your shade. He's your keeper. Now, Here's the interesting thing about him being a shade. Can you pick up shade? Can you mutilate shade? Can you tell it, manipulate it, tell it what you want it to do? You can't. Shade is where it is because the object blocking the light has cast it there. God, it did not say, you're our shield. Now we can take him up and say, great, I'm going to take you wherever I go. I'm good. Nope, the shade is transfixed somewhere. He will be our keeper so long as we are walking with him, so long as we are staying on his path. And it's day and night, so it doesn't stop. The shade is there for all situations. But Here's the thing that we can start to think when we hear this psalm is to think, oh, wow, what a deal. I become a Christian and I don't have to worry about anything. Nothing's going to hurt me. I can now go to church in the fog. Yay. Well, no, um, not necessarily. You see, nowhere in here does it guarantee that your body is going to be left unharmed. It doesn't guarantee that. What we see in this psalm is the guarantee that the pilgrims who are moving toward Jerusalem will arrive at their destination. It's the same with the Christian, that what we have is a guaranteed delivery. We are guaranteed to arrive to our destination. That's what he's keeping. He's keeping us safe until we reach our destination, the new Jerusalem, the new heavens, the new earth. Some people call this predestination. And then the room got tense. 
Now, when I, when I read predestination in the Bible, I don't read that God is looking at humanity and he's like, this one, that one, as if you were picking jelly beans at a candy shop. That one, oh, that reminded me of going to the Jelly Belly factory. And that's literally the kids were like, it's predestination time. Which ones are worthy? Which ones are chosen? That's not how he did it with us. That's not what predestination, as I understand it, means. Uh, the rest can go to hell. They're the wrong color. Ugh, the, the buttered popcorn one. Ugh. That's not, what predestination means is he has predestined his people. Where are his people predestined? Someone said heaven. Other terminology is new creation, new heaven, new earth, the new Jerusalem. That's our destination, and he's predetermined that destination. He didn't predestine you over that person. He predestined his people's eventual arrival. This is his psalm about predestination. He's keeping us until we arrive. So, coronavirus. Are you terrified? Maybe you are. If it's your body that God's supposed to keep for you, good luck. But if it's your soul, good luck. He's got you. You see, we have a body, but a body is not what I am. I am more than a body. If you were to take my body away, if you were to make my body stop working, the Brandon that God created still exists. God won't let anything happen to that Brandon. Now, that's not to say we can abuse our bodies and be careless with them, because God does care about the body. He cares so much about the body that he will allow it to be wrecked today to resurrect it later, right? The great resurrection is that we will all be reunited with our bodies one day, as Jesus was reunited with his body, a new body, a better body. But we don't have to worry, because God's keeping your true essence, if you will. I think the biblical term for this is soul. He's keeping your soul. You're an eternal being, and he's got you. So that is him keeping them to their destination. He's keeping us to our destination, whether it's the moon, <laughs> sunstroke or moonstroke or coronavirus or um, car accidents. He's keeping you intact. Now, by the way, moonlight was actually something people were scared of back then. You might have heard of a lunatic. <laughs> Seriously, that's where it comes from. They believed that too much exposure to the moon could actually make you crazy. So we have words like lunatic or lunacy. But notice too that the journey goes. This is not a journey, a fair weather journey. Oh, yay, it's it's spring after this week, <laughs> after all the wet weather we're getting. It's spring. Let's go out on a hike now. That's not what this psalm's about. It's rain or shine, night or day. The journey goes. That's why it says walk. This is the time to walk. God's got you even in the bad times. All right, then verse 7. Yahweh will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. We already talked about that life being... Um, the life that you have beyond your present biological existence. Do you guys remember when we were in 
John, the Gospel of John, we differentiated the Greek language. That when Jesus talked about life, he used a word called zoe. And zoe is a Greek word for life that kept on going, not only forever, but it also kept going in depth, meaning it had no limit to its ability to enjoy and receive God. That was the zoe, the eternal life. Now, you contrast that with the life we usually use. It's called, or, or your term would be bios life, your biological construction. Yeah, that comes and goes, but it's your zoe life that God keeps. So he will keep your life. Verse 8, Yahweh will keep your coming out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. And I love that it ends with that whole going out and coming in because I feel like it's a good way to finalize the psalm and say that one of the ways that God keeps us is he keeps us stable. He keeps us stable. I think most of us experience our Christian life with ups and downs. I feel close to God today. I messed up. I hate the fact I haven't read the Bible for a week. I can't show my face at church because I know what Beatrix will think of me. Um, We go up and down all the time. That's our emotional experience with God. But that's not how God sees our relationship with him. And I don't think it's necessarily a good thing for us to, oh, I'm doing good with God, I'm doing bad with God, I'm doing good with God, I'm doing bad with God. It's a very unstable. Relationships don't work that way in life. God sees us as moving in and out. We come into him for sustenance. He feeds us. He shields us. He gives us strength. He gives us manna. Or in church terms, we say he gives us communion and he gives us his word and prayer and he allows us to worship him and gaze upon his beauty and then he sends us out and we go and we reflect that. We come in. We're like those glow-in-the-dark star things you stick on your ceiling. We receive his light as we come in and then we go out and glow it forth. That's the Christian life. It's not up and down. I'm doing great. I'm not doing great. It's in and out. It's with God. It's with people. It's with God. It's with people. And that's what he wants us to do as we make our pilgrimage, our ascent, is to keep walking in and out, in and out. Not up and down, up and down. God will keep us. He will make us stable. Now, there's a, there's a kind of hash over how the psalm's describing God as our keeper. But the thing that I found most fascinating was that little tidbit we said earlier about how he's interested in us. We don't have to keep his interest. He's interested in us. And that's what I just can't wrap my mind around. And I think the psalm lends itself beautifully to this. If you'll go back now up to verse 2, Remember, there's, okay, so in verse 1, he says, we have this setting, right, where the, where the psalmist is the pilgrim walking to Jerusalem. He says, I lift my eyes up to the hills. There's hills on the journey. There they are. And it reminds him of something. Hey, where does my help come from? The psalm begins with a question. Verses 2 to the end of the psalm is the answer. And he says, my help comes from Yahweh who made heaven, and earth. Okay, that's big. But then, this is what grabbed me this week. Verse 3. He will not let your 
be moved. Your foot. Does anybody else see the contrast going on here? My help is the God who made the heavens and the earth. And he will not let my foot stumble. He doesn't just take an interest in you apart from all the creation. Oh my goodness, my people, I care for them. I'm interested in them. But he cares for your feet. The little parts. The great God who made everything is just affirmed. My help comes from the maker of heaven and earth. Is not, he does not find you so low that he can't care about where your foot is being placed. See, this is the pilgrim's life. Is that God is fascinated with every detail of us. He doesn't find us boring. He doesn't see us as throwaways or castaways. He's interested in those little parts. And what always has gotten me, I remember way back when I was teaching Genesis to a youth group, uh, and I was reading a commentary, and he went on for pages about this one phrase in the creation account, and the stars. Genesis 1 talks about God creating the heavens and the earth. And then it talks about how he makes the sun, the two, the, the two lights, right? The greater light to rule by day, the lesser light to rule by night. And it's, it's talking about those, but then it simply says, and the stars. Three meager words to talk about something that there are billions of. Is it 400 billion in our galaxy alone? Do I have my, do I remember this properly? Four, some 400 billion in the Milky Way galaxy and this is just one of millions of galaxies. Are you kidding me? And the stars. You could have written an entire Bible describing God's fun in creating the stars and the galaxies and our Milky Way galaxy. And yet the Bible just passes right over such a huge part of creation with, yeah, and the stars. So what? Let's keep moving on. Okay. But then you turn one book over to Exodus, and Moses is commissioned by God to create a tent for the Israelites so that they can worship him in this barren wilderness between lands. It's no man's land. Here they are. Build me a tent. Now, if I was writing the Bible and the stars would have its own book about how awesome God is in this place and that place and whatever. And then I would talk about God told Moses to make a tent and he built it. That'd be it. But in the Bible we find God tells Moses to make a tent in Exodus chapter 25 and it details, elaborate detail, every little piece of this tent and how long it has to be, and what color, and shape, and fabric, and material. And then it not only lays all that out, but it then goes verbatim to say, and then Moses did exactly that. And it details it all over again. Chapters 25 to 40. This is all about the tent. Friends, the Bible is screaming out loud that though God made the heavens and the earth and can find an infinite array of things to entertain himself with, he finds 
the placement of your foot interesting. And that my life, as mundane and insignificant as it is, does not put him to sleep. I don't have to entertain him. He's already intricately interested in the smallest part of me. And he will keep that. No shouting to him. He's there. And he cares. With this in mind, it's easy to see how we can keep walking. So step one is God. Step two is walk. Because God is your keeper. And he isn't keeping you out of obligation. He's your interested keeper. But there's one more reason we should walk. And it's in verse one. I lift my eyes to the hills. Now, some translations say mountains. Most say hills. Uh, the Hebrew is nonspecific. The word just describes a raised lump of ground. doesn't specify how high. So some have picked to say these are mountains because they're imagining the pilgrims going up to Jerusalem. There's a mountain. There must be mountains. Others have picked hills because more realistically, there are foothills leading up to mountains, right? Um, I favor the word hills, not only because that make more sense, but also because the word hill has a very significant meaning throughout the rest of scripture, one that I think the psalmist is trying to get at with us. Where did Israel put their idolatry? Put them in the hills. The phrase you see over and over through Kings is the high places. The hills were the destinations for the God of your choice. And so here the pilgrim is walking to, the, to Jerusalem. We are on our ascension to the new Jerusalem. And what do we see as we lift up our eyes? All around us on the hills are the gods. Not the God who keeps us and watches over our feet. Not the God who will never sleep or slumber, but the other gods. And friends, sometimes the journey's challenging. And there's a lion, there's a tiger, there's a bear, and you're thinking, okay, let's just call that hill good enough. How many of you have ever been there in any endeavor you've ever made? You know that the mountain is the goal, but somewhere in the journey, the hill looks good enough. Hey, Frankie, I mean, look at the view from up here. It's great. You can see the city lights. There's a good school district. There you got fresh water. The, the, the taxes are low. Let's just settle here. Couldn't you imagine? Haven't we done this in our journey? Somewhere at some point in your life, maybe even tonight, you said, this is far enough. This is good enough. My feet are hurting. Look, this hill has a spa and massage. What else do we need? And look, look, they've got a deal. Bring one person, get yours free. Let's go. 
And so you go and you experience it and like, oh, this feels so good. You know, I really, do you want to go back on that rocky path? I wasn't thinking either. Besides, um, as soon as the coronavirus is gone, the sports will resume so we can watch all that. So let's just stay here until everything kind of dies down and then we'll get on with life. Oh, but you know how that happens. One month becomes one year, one year becomes a decade, and a decade becomes a life. There's something in us that wants more, but is unwilling to walk for more. There's a point when your walk says, enough. And here's the danger. The reason this psalm encourages us to walk, yes, God's got your feet, but it also encourages us to walk because the minute we stop walking, the minute we let idleness creep into our life, we settle for idolatry. Idleness leads to idolatry. The minute we stop walking, we stop needing a God who watches over our feet. What good is a God who watches my feet? Man, they're up on a pillow watching football. It's great. And I'm not saying football is necessarily a God if you watch it. Although for our nation, I can't say that. Um, the minute we stop walking, we, just, we choose to settle. We choose to deny the restlessness in our heart and to fill it with entertainment. So, there's hill one, there's hill two, there's hill three. There's so many gods for me to choose. Different places of my life, different needs of entertainment. Let me just settle. That's the danger of this psalm. And so let's not forget that as we make our ascension and we lift up our eyes to the hills, we must ask ourselves when we see the hills around us, where does my help come from? I get that they all. I get that fill in the, all the other ways we use our time, energy, and money in our nation. I get that those are interesting. I get that those pose less danger or less challenge. But ask yourself, do those bring me help? Are these where my help comes from? And if you look at it in this light, and if you ask the questions hard enough, you will discover the answer is a resounding no. No. Everything else that we seek for help that did not make the heavens and the earth will never bring you satisfaction and will always ruin you in the end. Here's the thing we've been talking about. I may perish, but God keeps my life. You know why he keeps my life? Because my life is his. But guess what happens when my life becomes money? What happens when my money goes away? If I have asked money to keep my life and money goes away, who is left of me? What is left of me? If any of you guys heard the Snow Sunday message, you'll remember that, that parable Jesus told about the rich man and Lazarus. We see that Lazarus is named, but the rich man is not because he has poured his identity into his riches. And when he dies and is no longer rich, there's no self left. This is why the hills are not your help. They cannot keep you. You will be reduced 
nothing. But God is our keeper, so when we walk and we see the hills, we can say, ah, delusion, delusion, delusion. That's what, I, that's what Jeremiah told us in chapter 3. In chapter 3, verse 23, he says, The hills are a delusion. The orgies on the mountains are there. Truly in Yahweh our God is the salvation of Israel. Jeremiah knew that the hills were a delusion. Do we? Do we see them and ask, where does our help come from? Let's pray. Lord, you know our hearts and how easily deceived and misled they are.